0: Really deep stuff, things that they wouldn't even like get, comprehend.
1: Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another show. We are in the abyss. We are in uncharted territories. Very underrated movie, by the way. Abyss. Have you seen that one?
0: Is there like a, a monster really deep in the Wait like? Wait a second,
1: spoilers! Trench? What's going on? What's going on? Spoilers! Wait, it's is an, that, isn't that on the
0: the cover? Like the cover's like a submarine in the middle like what else is it gonna be
1: about. Ben? Have you noticed they've been doing this now? The older the movie gets, the cover like indicates a spoiler. Like at a certain point the Titanic is just gonna be a ship split in half on the cover. <laughs> well, uh, well, first of
0: all, I don't think they need to like be worried about spoiling like the Alamo
1: or like Titanic. Like no one's gonna be like, What? No one ever told me about this event. I know that's why I chose that one. I didn't wanna I didn't wanna go down and spoil you know, I could have done the sixth Sense. I could have done Some other ones. What are we talking about? We're in the abyss because, Cody, it's 3-2. The Nuggets are waiting around to see who they're going to play in the NBA Finals. The Heat take this lead. Boston, we're going to talk about it. They finally did some stuff that involved playing basketball together as a team. They tried a radical strategy of putting the ball in the basket. And also, my favorite trying to guard the Miami Heat when they were driving with the basketball toward the hoop. They were able, especially with that big second half push, able to get a game on the road to go to 3-1. Last night, I thought they played very well from the jump. We'll talk about some of the things they did. 3-2, it's getting real interesting. It's getting very, very interesting. How are you feeling about this series right now?
0: Well I think what was really interesting is after game 4 you know I I wanted to jump into the jump into the spreadsheets like I like to do see if there's like a mathematical reason for what was going on and something that I noticed is just like the their rim and three point frequency the Celtics like 80% of their shots either came at the rim or the three-point line, which was it was continually getting higher each game, so it's one of those where I'm like, okay, cool, their shot diet's going up, but maybe it's the fact that they just made a lot of threes, and then I looked at like their their corner three-point frequency, the, the percentage of their shots that came from the corners, it was like more than double any other game in the series, and I'm like, okay, this is interesting, so I think that's a good indicator that they were moving the ball around a little bit more, because you usually don't isolate and get yourself like a corner three, that just doesn't Happen very often. This is in
1: game five, you're saying?
0: This is game four. Game four, okay, okay. This is game four, right? And so that was kind of my thing going into game five because I was keeping an eye out and I'm like, I want to see if this passing is going to keep up and I want to see if the corner threes are going to keep falling. And I think they hit like three corner threes in the first quarter. And if that's the case, Ben, those were the only corner threes they made for the entire game. And ultimately, their offense wasn't really that good compared to the previous game. I think they ended up scoring like 110 points versus like 120 or something like that from game four. So I think what really impressed me and which makes me start, you know, warming back up to the Celtics in this series is I think that game five was a much better display of defense where at no point in the game did I ever feel like the Heat were going to make their run. Like we saw the Heat throughout the playoffs come charging back from being down 14, 15, you could never rest with them. But there is not a single point in game five. I don't know if you feel the same way, but there's not a single point where I'm like, wow, the Heat are going to come back. No, every second seemed to be a little bit in disarray. They just didn't have it going. So um, I just think it's it was nice to see the Celtics get a better shot diet, and they really tightened up the defense, it felt like.
1: Yeah, the process, I thought, was way better for them on both sides of the ball. And to your point, it was one of those games that I was watching in the second quarter going, boy, Boston has completely dominated the process in this game. Now, I think the place to start, especially if we're going to be on the side of the ball where Miami has it, Boston's playing defense, Gabe Vincent. Gabe Vincent's injury is big for two huge reasons. One, we've talked about How, as a a member of the South Beach law firm, uh, he has been so critical, playing so well in this series alongside the other undrafted guys like Max Struess and uh, Caleb Martin, the guy can't miss. He, He thinks he's the number one scorer in the NBA now. It's amazing. But the thing is, even with Butler and some of what Martin is doing, you take Vincent off the court for whatever he's playing, 30, 35 minutes a game. And I thought initiating actions for Miami, some of the pick-and-roll stuff that they would set up outside of trying to um, get Jimmy Butler a hunted matchup or something, it was just clunky. And you commented on it right away. Uh, I feel like now we watch the games together because we, we, we talk through the games a lot in our group. But you said, like, right away, Bam Autobio is getting more offense and not the kind of Bam Autobio offense that you love, where he's at the elbow and the heater moving and he's a distributor. It was post ups, it was isolation attempts. That's not his forte. I think the Celtics will take that all day. And to me, that was like, well, they don't have another guy that can really attack and create. And Vincent's not even great at that. But just having that weapon out there, I thought, was big. Kyle Lowry uh, was unable to really do that throughout the game. So I thought that, coupled with Boston's defensive intensity, some of the ball pressure, was a huge, huge factor. And that gets me to, if we're going to stay on that side of the ball, the Celtics creating turnovers, getting stops, rebounds, and runouts. That defense-to-offense transition, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but it was huge in the first half. I kept pulling note after note, play after play, going, boy, the Celtics are getting easy offense in transition because they're creating a turnover, because they're getting a stop. Um, You know, Tatum blocks somebody from behind, foul in transition. Jalen Brown jumps a passing lane, layup in transition. Adebayo misses at the rim, you get the five on four kind of run out, corner three that you were talking about. So that process defensively, and even things like, being a little more deliberate about how they guarded Butler. We're going to have Tatum on him. We're going to have Smart on him. We're going to throw him different looks. All of that helped the offense, I thought, for the Celtics right on the defensive end out of the gate.
0: Yeah, I want to go back to the BAM thing because I'm, I'm glad you jogged my memory on this because that, it was kind of baffling to me. It felt like you know, early, like in the 2000s, you would usually start a playoff game or a game or you throw it down to your big man. you got to like, get him
1: the touches, right? Yeah, I got to give
0: him the touches so he'll run the court and play some defense. And I saw that, and I'm like, oh, weird, Spolster's doing that with Bam. But then they did it again. And they did it again. And again, I'm like, well, wait a second. We were just talking about on a previous podcast how much we've liked Bam's passing. Maybe it was just me talking about that. But I've really liked Bam's passing up in the, uh, you know, dribble handoff sorts of actions at the top. And that wasn't the way that they were playing with Bam. And I found that really to be confusing. Like, he was setting his screens, which I think you also want to be talking about at some point today, Ben. Is Bam out of bio screening people? Um, but he, to, he was no, doing that well. That. <laughs> and I think he was opening up the court for, for a few people like Ben. Did you know that Duncan Robinson had nine assists? Did you know that Duncan Robinson had was a plus seven in twenty-eight minutes? It was it was a shocking game to see Duncan Robinson dusted off, coming out there, playing twenty-eight minutes, getting plus seven, running the offense. Haywood Highsmith 36 minutes, plus two out there. It was just a really weird process game and it was almost like they were just trying to find offense from anywhere and I just don't like Bam being in that position. I just don't think he creates and generates good easy shots for himself. And, you know, ultimately like you said, the Celtics put him in positions that they didn't want to be in and the Heat kind of got beat that way.
1: I the, uh, I think Duncan Robinson had some uh garbage time minutes that that pushed that up to plus 7, but boy is that a that is a funny stat. The other side of the ball, I, I think it's finally time we talk about the heat defense. And specifically, because we talked about the heat defense, let me, let me try to get that sentence more accurate. The heat zone. That's what I'm thinking of here, Cody. The heat zone. This thing is fascinating. This thing, if we get some time to dive into it at some point, uh, would, would make a great video. Because it is atypical of a lot of the zones you see in the NBA. It is essentially a zone that you could call a no threes zone. Okay, that's the idea. So if you think about a 2-3 zone, just the classic basketball zone, one of the things that teams do is they start shooting threes over it because they're like, oh, they're in a zone. There's going to be a soft spot on the perimeter. I'm going to take my shots. And for some teams, it's a trap. They get induced to being too passive. They take too many shots. But the one thing you think of is, well, if I'm going to zone a good shooting team, it's going to be trouble because they might get a ton of open threes. Miami's zone stretches out to the perimeter. That's the idea behind it. So you have Bam in the middle. He stays near the basket. He'll go on one side of the paint or the other, typically depending on where the ball is. And the other players stretch out to the three-point line, even to the point that they try to take away the passes along the three-point line. How many times in this series have we seen someone like Tatum turn to throw a pass from one slot to the other slot, just a little simple cross the top of the key, and Jimmy Butler is there to eat, eat it up and steal it? Um, even in the corners, the zone is designed to take away some of those corner threes you're talking about. But I thought a little in Game 4 and really last night, Boston started to figure out, okay, I get the rules of this thing. I've seen this thing enough over the course of the series. We as a unit have an idea of how we want to attack it. And it usually starts with a screen up top from one of the big men like Al Horford. And then you go from there, you try to get in the middle, you add in a little movement to kind of confuse some of the responsibilities of the zone. And again, I don't know what the numbers were off the top of my head, but that process for the Celtics felt a lot better. So if we, if we pump the brakes on the hardcore nerdy analysis, right, and we just take a step back, we're at a 3-2 series.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was 3-0. The team that was down 3-0, a unique position that we talked about last show, where I think all other things being equal, they're the superior team. They, they are the 2 seed. They went to the NBA Finals last year. They have a ton of talent. They also have home court advantage. And essentially now they're also the healthier team. Because the Heat have lost Tyler Hero, they lost Victor Oladipo from the backcourt depth, and this Gabe Vincent injury. Like I was looking at the roster before the game, they're just out of guards. There isn't even anybody that they could really play. Uh, Stan Van Gundy was joking about get getting Caleb Martin's brother to come in, the twin brother, and see if they could uh, pull a switcheroo. With uh, my my dad's a twin, so uh, you know the switcheroo story is always on the table. But that's neither here nor there. So it, it's like. Um, the the process for Boston in the game, in the last game, and maybe even the last game and a half, looked really good. The home court is sitting there if they could get it to game seven. And they're the more talented team. And so just taking a step back, this if you're going to create a situation to do a 3 nothing comeback, to, to actually succeed in a 3 nothing comeback, it feels like this is the situation. If you want to work in basketball or just deeper your understanding of the NBA, Sports Business Classroom is my number one recommendation. Sports Business Classroom is an immersive program that takes place inside of Summer League in Las Vegas, and you'll get training in scouting, media, the salary cap, and analytics from industry leaders. Past instructors and guests include Commissioner Adam Silver, Mike D'Antoni, Masayu Ujiri, Daryl Morey, Mike Breen, and Zach Lowe. Dozens of SBC alum have gone on to work in basketball, including two Thinking Basketball team members. And this year's session runs from July 9th to 15th in Las Vegas. So if you're interested, check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And I have a discount for you. Enter the code thinking basketball at sign up and get three hundred dollars off. That's sportsbusinessclassroom.com. dot com and for three hundred dollars off, enter the code thinking basketball.
0: We kind of talked about this last time. I think we said that like the the it's like a tornado watch sort of thing. Like The conditions are right for this situation, Ben. Like, I, I, Maybe I shouldn't say tornado watch. I don't know if you get tornadoes in California, but we're, we're in the heart of it in the Midwest. We're getting into tornado season, and we're definitely in watch territory. Um, I don't know if you would consider me a hot take artist. I would like to think that I'm not. Like, I, I try and be as tempered and as reasoned as I can be. Um, with that said, Ben, I think the Celtics are going to win the series.
1: Whoa. Whoa. Mm.
0: I do. Wow. I do. And I think where I'm coming from with this, and it kind of goes back to the Game 5 thing that I was talking about is, Game 4, I was a little bit more skeptical because I'm like, oh, this is some really hot shooting from the Celtics. I don't know if they can replicate it. But then they reclaimed the defensive thing. If you remember, I said the Celtics were going to win the championship before the playoffs. Like, this was my pick. I thought they were going to go all the way. And it was predicated on the fact that I think they were the only team that was like uh, three points better than league average on both offense and defense. They were just such a well-rounded team. And I thought that their, their defense was the type of defense that you could ramp up in the playoffs. And we hadn't necessarily seen it like consistently through the playoffs. That was one of the things that I thought was always lacking and they really ramped it up, I thought these last couple games and I'm like, oh, if they found their footholds here and like you just said, if we have the depleted heat right now where I don't care how well Jimmy might be playing, there's just, there's just not a lot going on uh, beside him and that's not, that's not anything mean to everyone else, right? We're just talking about some replacement bench players. I, I think the conditions are perfect for the Celtics to come back. I'm not saying I'm like going to the bank on it. But I have a, I just have a feeling, Ben. I feel like the Celtics are going to win the series.
1: Well, <sighs> okay. Let me let me uh, let me meet you in the middle of half take territory here. If they win Game Six tomorrow, mm-hmm. like how confident are you they're going to win Game Seven? Wow. Um, is it
0: weird for me to say that my confidence would probably be the same?
1: It would actually. It would depend. No, that's okay. what I want to know.
0: I think. Right now, I would say it would be about the same, but it would also be dependent on how they won tomorrow's game. If they win game six because they shoot 50% from three and it's like a 136-125 kind of barn burning game, I don't know. I'd maybe back off a little bit, but if they hold the Heat under 100 again, because I think they've held them under 100 the last two games, if that happens... I'm going to feel even more confident that they have the defensive uh, mojo back going into seven.
1: Let's talk about this three-point shooting. Uh, there was an article from Steph No today talking about all of the make or miss variability that takes place with the three-point shot in in the playoffs. I believe the stat he had was teams are 61 and 15 when they win the three-point battle. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head if it was the three-point percentage battle or the three-point shots made. I want to say the percentage battle. Uh, We'll we'll double-check that in a second. Um, Yes, it is is the percentage battle. I was able to locate it instantly with the power of the internet and a mouse and a computer. (laughs) I feel good about that. So, okay, here's the thing. 61 and 15, that's a really good win percentage. But at a certain point does it get derivative? Because 40% of the shots in the in the game today are threes, right? And the three is worth one and a half more than the two. So maybe the three, let's set free throws aside, maybe the three is actually the thing generating more of these uh, kind of uh, essentially points that are being swung in the game by taking all these shots. So it's like in the old days, they used to say stuff like, well, you know, the team that shot higher from the field won 91% of the time. It's like, well, yeah, because that was the team that that's how you score more points. You shoot higher from the field. And when I say derivative, what I mean is go back to what we just said about the game last night. The Celtics were able to get good shots, which is why the three-point percentage was high. Yeah, White and Brown made a couple heaters or whatever. You know, They made a couple tough shots. But Throughout the course of a game, and especially when you're defending hard and you're going defense to offense and getting easy points that way, running down into the corner and getting wide open threes is a recipe to shoot 34, 36, 40% on volume threes. And so one thing that I think really relates to this series based on how the Celtics play and it relates to this series based on the, the hot shooting of the Heat and how it's come and gone. In the Knicks series, I don't think Miami had a single game where they shot over 35% from downtown, a stark difference from the, uh, the incredible display against Milwaukee. The, the place I'm going here, Cody, is this. The percentage of your three-point shots and the volume of your three-point shots is often dictated upstream in the possession. And that's why, to your point, to answer your, you know, I asked you this question, the way the game looks, the process is such a big deal because if the Celtics can't get good process offensively, and for them against Miami, that usually means turning the ball over, right? And turning the ball over in live ball situations that then helps the heat. Miami either gets something in transition or they get some kind of goofy cross match early in the possession. And it's like, ah, they can, they can go to work and get something that they want to get. If Boston doesn't turn the ball over and they make good decisions and they have a good attacking process, that's when you get, I think, these games where it's like, ah, we got 40, 45, three-point attempts. Yeah, you got 45, three-point attempts because the ball touched the paint. The defense collapsed and you got a wide-open shot. There was that incredible sequence in the game. What a sequence where Tatum... uh touched the paint away from the ball. Someone passed it to him. He turned and spun and touched past it to the corner right at that shot. Uh, I think it was an up fake and then a swing to the other side. Al Horford got an offensive rebound off the first shot, got another offensive rebound on the second shot. He moved it back to another corner to Marcus Smart, who touched past it back to Tatum. For a three, you see, you're, you're getting those wide-open shots because of the process earlier in the possession that allows you to collapse the defense. So the, that's a long way of saying if the Celtics keep playing like that, especially if Gabe Vincent is out, I, yeah, they have an extremely good chance, I think, of winning both games, which is just an incredible story.
0: And that process of, of the Celtics getting paint touches, I thought Jason Tatum... I feel like he's been more aggressive in attacking the rim. And I think a couple of plays in even that first quarter were indicative. I think he had he had like an and one where there might have been a hedge off a ball screen. He splits the defense, goes in, gets some contact, and puts it in. And then I think later in the quarter, it might have been the second, he hit that really beautiful, I think he upfaked, drives in, he threw down like a, you know, put a little bit of sauce on that cockback dunk in the half court. But when I see that, I'm like, okay. If Jason Tatum's going into the paint, like that's causing, especially with the zone defense, where you're going to have a lot of Miami's guys out on the perimeter, it's going to cause a lot more rotations. That's going to make a few of these passing angles open a little bit more. So I think aggressive attacking the basket, Tatum, as opposed to like super relying on that step back three or relying on like the mid range jumper, that's the kind of Tatum that the Celtics need to see if they're going to rely on this uh, this
1: offensive system. Cody, are you reading my notes? My next note that I want to talk about says Boston attacking quick actions from Tatum. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what you just hit. And it's, it's both in man and zone. So one of the plays that you're referring to in the first half, the details don't even matter at this point, but essentially there was a little gap to attack for Tatum because like Kevin love, he messed up the drops a touch. And if you're too passive, if you're thinking too much, some of what was going on earlier in the series, you miss that opportunity. But in this case, Tatum's got the ball. He's running pick and roll. And, you know, John Madden style, like, bam, he sees that little gap and he attacks it with his head down. And then, you know, you get a dunk, you get an and one, you get a kick out. That's in man situation. Exact same thing in the zone. What they want to do essentially in the zone is they want to get in the middle. They want to get the ball in the middle, but they also understand, like, I can pull heat defenders out of the comfort area of the zone to swing it back into space. So that means when you're Tatum and you have the ball and you set that high ball screen, there's two guys up at the top of the zone. If there's space in between them, just try to split them. Just try to spin right through. I think he did it two times in the first half. Another time, Al Horford slips through that spot. Tatum hits him with the pocket pass really quickly. Tatum had a number of really good passes in that game. And I think that whole process is key for Boston. If they go back to Miami and they get away from that process or the genius of Eric Spolstra comes up with a new way to counter it and says, "We're going to throw you a different look." Right? We may be running out of players, but the, le- the at the least we can throw you a curveball that in a vacuum might not even be like the greatest tactical move ever. It'll just change up what you saw in game 4 and game 5 and then they can create some turnovers and they can get the Celtics being hesitant, I think that's a recipe for Miami to win game six at home, as well as just some of the shooting variants, obviously. I think if the Celtics, early in the game, have a hard time getting some good shots, the Heat get a couple breakdowns, a couple runouts on the other end, Duncan Robinson's hitting a three, and you're at home and you get that lead, I think that's another way uh, that they could successfully kind of enforce the tempo that they want the style of play that they want throughout the rest of the game um yeah it's I'm, I'm looking forward to this game let's put it that way
0: i really am and you're right i think there's a couple of avenues where it doesn't work out for the celtics like there's a very good chance that the heat just put them away because something doesn't go right even one thing defensively like i'm talking about with the celtics the thing that can't i don't necessarily think they could replicate it uh the amount of steals The Celtics got last game. I thought, I swore they had six players out there on defense. Like, they're gapping defense. How aggressively, like if someone was posting up or somebody was driving and there's one of the Celtics was playing at the nail, their hands, their targeting the ball off dribbles and movements and stuff was just excellent. I think every single one of the Celtics starters, except for, I think, one, I don't remember who it was off the top of my head, but only one of them didn't have two steals. And I'm pretty sure Marcus Smart had five steals, which is a career high. Maybe I don't know if he's had more than five or more than I don't know if he's had five steals before in the playoffs. So I don't know. The Celtics in general haven't forced a ton of turnovers in the past. I think one of the the commentators made that note during the game last night. So <laughs> if they're not creating those, if they're not creating those turnovers, is the gapping defense still going to be enough? to cause the Heat to miss a lot of those shots. Is the, the turnover game not going to swing that much? So again, those are some avenues where the Heat definitely can still come back and win this, but the process is still what I'm loving from the Celtics.
1: Yeah, and when Cody says gapping, he's talking about shrinking in, sitting in those driving lanes. Looks like there's a ton of bodies out there when you try to penetrate. Both smart, and I th- ironically, Al Horford only had one steal. It may have been credited to smart Instead, But in that first half, they both had a number of possessions where they're leaving their guy and sinking down and getting their hands in the uh, whether it's a post up or someone trying to drive into the paint. They created a, a ton of turnovers. Smart's career high in the playoffs is five, which was set last night. Uh, we don't we don't want the smart people coming after us because I think in the regular season he's had like eight steals mm-hmm. in a game. Um, but it was it was Stan Van Gundy who said, but I think he actually said if I get the quote right, I think he said Boston is a team that does not get steals. <laughs> um, obviously they get a few, but the point taken being right that they they aren't a team that forces a lot of live ball turnovers like that. And as we said earlier, it, it makes it very easy for the offense so it'll be interesting to see I, I think the thing I'm most excited to see is if Spo tries to pull some kind of rabbit out of the hat to mm. change the process but obviously just getting Gabe Vincent back for this game could be huge as well to give them another ball handler out on the perimeter another decision maker another guy that can penetrate
0: so how do you I said that I feel like the Celtics are going to win do you want to make a declaration? Do you have any strong feelings either way? Or are you just in, in, let's watch this mode and see what happens?
1: No, I in. Mean, let's watch it. I mean, I, I've said everything that I can say probabilistically uh, on this podcast. I, uh, I I am sitting back and watching. I I do think tomorrow night, I think I'm a little more bullish on game seven than you. Uh, because I do think Miami can walk, walk in there and win game seven. No problem. It, it, it's Miami. But... If Boston can continue the process and tomorrow, and, and in game six, I, I, I guess if Vincent doesn't play, that's another wild card. But assuming he plays in game six and they can throw nothing at Boston to disrupt their process, then I would feel really, really good about game seven. So game six becomes like this enormous sort of probability pivot point where if you could get over that hurdle, then you're back at home. On the flip side, of course, Game Six is the is the game to seal it for Miami, and I think they have a decent shot to do that. So uh, I'm I'm pretty excited about the whole thing.
0: And I'm looking playing a little stat sheet game. Uh, Jimmy Butler had 14 points. Do you think this is this feels like this is beyond? We should just move on. If you hate this take, but do you think Butler felt it early on? Do you think he kind of kind of felt that there just wasn't a chance? Was he looking at it like oh? Maybe I should reserve myself for the for the game six explosion. That's, that's kind of so. how,
1: it, that's how
0: it felt. That's how it felt. No,
1: I mean no. It's he it, he wasn't forcing things, and uh, and I think they did a better job defending him and taking away a lot of easy actions. In the, I mean, he didn't play the fourth quarter at all, right? They just didn't play the starters in the fourth quarter. So, who says if it was a close game, Butler wouldn't have finished with thirty? That's a good but, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Jamal Murray, mm-hmm. he uh, averaged 33 points per game in the Western Conference Finals. I'm not sure how many people know that. I I, I really want to know the voting results of the Magic Johnson Western Conference Finals MVP. We just did a video on him in the playoffs for the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. If you haven't seen it, it is out. And uh, Cody, 30, 33 points a game, 65% true shooting I thought he had a real good chance of winning MVP of that series he was a monster he had two huge explosions at the end of game two to help swing that game for Denver and the first half of game three when Jokic was struggling Uh, and otherwise I thought the Lakers defense had a really good first half and yet you have 30 in the first half puts Denver in front. They're able to keep them at bay. He he and Jokic make some plays down the stretch along with the other guys in the fourth quarter. And the result is you get a series where all four games were extremely competitive, but it was a four-game sweep because you just keep winning those close games. And a lot of it was him. He's been brilliant in this postseason. Um, You've seen the video. You've seen, obviously, all the Nuggets games in the playoffs. What, What are your thoughts on him right now?
0: Well, the short of it all is that Jamal Murray has just what you call an inelastic kind of offensive repertoire, right? The fact that he has so many counters and he's so good at moving off ball and he's such a strong finisher and so creative that the better the defense has come, it doesn't necessarily affect him. Is that kind of the the main thesis of the video?
1: I think it's that combined with his shooting skill. So the first thing you're getting at is the shot making, just like all the different counters, all the different moves. But the second part to me is we don't talk about him as an elite shooter. And he may not be in like that super tier one category. A couple of years ago when he was injured, I think, we, uh, for, for Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, we had an article that we did, I think related to one of our pods on shooting, where I laid out like tier zero, tier zero was Steph Curry as best shooters in the league and tier one and tier two. And we just kind of talked about the volume and the pull-up shooting off the dribble stuff, movement shooting. Um, And so I, again, I think he was injured. So I don't even think he was included in that, but we don't think about him in that space. And this is, this is a guy in the last two playoffs he's played. Cody, he's shooting 43% from downtown on volume. And you know from watching the games, these are not easy shots sometimes. That's one part of it. Secondly, without looking it up, do you know in the last two playoffs, and I know he hasn't taken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, he doesn't get to the line that much, what do you think his free throw percentage is in the last two playoffs? Oh, I
0: know he's been on fire this one. And just for the record, his last two playoffs are this season and then the bubble. Right. Like those are the last two playoffs.
1: Right. So it spans a lot of time because his injury eliminated him from two postseasons. But the good thing is he's up to 34 games in the sample. It's a it's a good, healthy playoff sample over a multi-year stretch. And he's playing a diverse set of quality opponents because they've made it to the Western Conference Finals. Both times we're going to get a seven series here in the NBA Finals. So this is no joke. This This is serious stuff for Murray when we talk about his his stats and his scoring.
0: So the free throw, um, I feel like it's over 90, but it can't be too much over now. I'm going to say like 91% from the free throw line.
1: That is, a, that is a fantastic guess. He is 91% in his career from the free throw line in the playoffs. And I think he's either 91 or 92, depending on how it rounds. I can't remember off the top of my head. But like, you look at that shot profile. So first part to me was the shot making and the counters. The second part to me was the fact that he is legitimately an elite shooter where he goes what actual tier, you know, how many guys are ahead of him, I don't know, but that's part two. And then part 3. And I didn't I didn't want to get into it in the video. It's a lot easier to contextualize on a podcast. He reminds me of Steph Curry. It's wow. like a it's like a light version of that game where you get some on-ball action, you get some off-ball action, and the key for Murray is much like the case with Curry, but Murray's a little different. Their names rhyming is definitely not going to be a problem for me. I'm going to make it through this segment. No problem. Um, the thing with Murray is he's big. He's a big guard. He is in shoes probably close to 6'5". Okay, that's what my intel is telling me. I have some, I have some intel on this, uh, but he's he's listed at 6'4", when he's the same height as a lot of guys that are 6'5". Like, if you look at the photo, the team photo, when he's standing next to Malik Beasley a couple years ago, Malik Beasley measured 6'3 and a half without shoes, and he's listed at 6'5". They're the same size. So this is a big dude, okay? And he, when he's off ball, I tried to start the video with it with all these handoffs and things like that. He can get into his shot moving and flowing and running in 19 different directions, So the totality of those three things, that's the thesis. That's what jumped out to me. And we can get into his defense and his passing and his playmaking. But boy, you pair that with Jokic, it's like you got the shot making, you have an elite outside shooter, and you have a hybrid movement on ball guy that you can play two-man dribble handoff, pick and roll. It's it's an incredible combination.
0: So I don't know if skepticism... Is the right word, but I, I was looking at some some numbers. As, apparently, this is the numbers episode. The how, cool how, stat, how
1: dare you? To the rescue. Yeah. How dare you be skeptical? <laughs> so of so the I was blue looking a little bit. I,
0: I was the what? Wait, what did you just say? The blue arrow. The blue arrow. Oh,
1: yeah. That's it, that's, that's his like, nickname. Like other people call him that, or is that a you thing? No, I don't call him that. He, that's oh, his. Yeah. That's his nickname. That's what other uh, people call him. Yeah, I'm really. Yeah, you don't I'm see a, on the bench when he makes a three, all the bench guys doing the firing an arrow motion well i do i didn't know where the blue came from is it because he's a nugget i don't know where the blue comes from either maybe he got it at kentucky the, i don't do know
0: where blue I, I don't know college players they could wear maybe he blue. had
1: it in canada we, we we need to know the story of this someone someone please t- tell us what the story behind the blue arrow is this is the real journalistic work we need right now <laughs> is the nickname
0: of the blue arrow? the crowdsourcing so, yeah yeah it's an yeah, efficient exactly. way to do it <laughs> here are some numbers ben <laughs> In the playoffs, this season and then the 2020 season, so those last two playoffs, when he's on the court with Jokic, it's good. Their offensive rating is like a 121, but he himself is scoring about 26 points per 75 on about 62% true shooting. All right, that's pretty solid, right? When Jokic is off, in those two playoffs, he's scoring about 27 points for 75 on about 57% true shooting. When we're talking about, especially when you throw out a name like Steph Curry, and I know you're not actually comparing their offensive games. I think you're talking about the aesthetics of the way that they play a little bit more. But when we're talking about this guy that has an inelastic offensive game, that's got all these creative finishes, that can that's shooting 90% from the line, 43% from three, when I see the fact that he doesn't make that much of a jump Without Jokic when he's the uh, lone star, so to speak, I would almost expect that per 75 to be closer to 30, maybe 32, maybe the true shooting percentage goes. So I don't know if that's a byproduct of the fact that he has such good synergy with Jokic that the on-court numbers are maybe higher than they would be with another kind of center. But when I was looking at those numbers, I'm like, huh. I feel like this uh, Lone Star offensive numbers, these scoring numbers, should maybe look a little bit better when we're looking at how good he is at some of these scoring skills.
1: Wow. See, this is uh, – you say skepticism. I say uh, overly critical. How about that? Mm-hmm. Oh, ooh, tell me. What, why is it overly critical? Well, I, I'm, I'm tongue-in-cheek, but I think you're – correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're coming at it from the perspective that when you start to lay out the things I laid out, you're kind of expecting Murray to be an all-world offensive player. And so if you're an all-world offensive player in a Lone Star situation like that, given some of the other teammates we know they've had in the last two playoff runs, typically you'd see that number over at or over 30 points per 75 instead of hovering in the same space with a little loss in efficiency. That's where you're coming from, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, this gets into some of the subtleties of his game that are that are weaknesses or prevent him from being at that level. But I do think you're saying Steph Curry, Dame Lillard, um, help me, like, wh- who are the other super elite offensive engines in the league? Whoever they are, right? They are maybe at a certain level, and then. Murray might be at the next level in the postseason. And I don't think that's... I still don't think there's that many guys in the world offensively that you can list that you would clearly rather have over him based on how he's played in the playoffs over again what is now a a pretty decent sample size, right? That's like 34 games and 1,500 minutes or whatever it comes out to against these six opponents. So that's my read on that. I think if he actually were capable of just going hey, Jokic is off the court, I'm going to be a 32-point-per-game scorer consistently with league average efficiency, and then I think we would have to talk about him in that upper crust of offensive players and offensive guards in the whole world.
0: Can I ask you another player, and you tell me where you have him relative to this other player
1: offensively? That would be great, because I, when I tried to list other players a second ago, my, my brain went completely empty, and I could only think of uh, Dame and Steph. Well, when I
0: when I think of uh, this kind of shot making and, and creativity and elasticity, um, Devin Booker. Let's use Devin Booker as an anchor. Where does Jamal Murray's playoff offense compare to what you've seen from Booker?
1: The the Booker we saw in these playoffs, it's so tough because to he was on a, Yeah, he was on a heater in these playoffs. I think he, I think the Booker in these playoffs would have to be better. Mm-hmm. I think if I looked at a larger lens, a longer scope. And I said, okay, I'm going to do some uh, men in black flashy thing on my memory from a couple of the games of Devin Booker in these playoffs. Then that would be a much closer conversation to me. Yeah, I I think you could actually. um, Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, because I guess off the top of my head, like Devin Booker's last season in the playoffs definitely didn't look like this season right like no. I don't think it was necessarily inefficient but it didn't match the the highs that we saw this year so when we're wrapping in those multi-year samples um that's when you start making the case like yeah Jamal Murray now we've seen it in two straight playoffs that he's played in, obviously not consecutive seasons but we've seen it enough where you're like yep this guy's at least close to being an elite offensive player in the playoffs.
1: yeah let, let me um let me give you some numbers Our yeah. our favorite thing to do you've been numbers. you've been giving a lot of numbers I would like to get in on the party Uh, We looked at the box plus minus model that we use for the playoffs that I developed years ago. It's available on the site for Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. It's on thinkingbasketball.net if you want to check that out. Uh, I looked at some multi-year samples of some guards that I thought were very interesting. So leave aside Steph Curry, Magic Johnson, Chris Paul, leave aside all those all-time great statistical kings and things like that. Look at some other guards, okay? Penny Hardaway. Penny boy, Penny Hardaway was amazing mm-hmm. if if you missed out on Penny Hardaway. Three-year peak in our box plus minus was uh, just under six. Gary Payton, just under six. Steve Nash, just under six. We talked about some of this last summer when we were going through our historical project, our, our top 40 careers. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, Chauncey Billups, about plus five and a half. Guys around five, Terry Porter, another incredibly underrated player. Uh, Kyrie Irving in that Cleveland stretch when they made the finals his last three years in Cleveland, uh, around five. Jason Kidd, a little under five. Dame Lillard, a little under five. Even a guy like Kevin Johnson. If you look at uh, larger samples, just a little bit over four. Tony Parker, a little bit under four. Say all those numbers, sixes and fives and fours, try -hmm. to kind of give you a hierarchy to put Murray into perspective because Murray's box plus minus in the playoffs right now is plus 5.4. And in 2020, it was plus 4.7. So you are talking about a guy that based on how he's played over now a slightly decent, healthy size in the postseason, sample size in the postseason, stacks up in the thicket of the names I just mentioned, in the middle of those names. And Cody, I don't know how you feel. We don't have to solve the world's mysteries today figuring this out. But all those players were All-Stars, and some of them were All-NBA players, and some of them get even fringy MVP kind of peaks that we talked about. Murray is a guy who somehow technically has never made an NBA All-Star team. But to me, in the postseason we are now looking at someone who is easily an all-star. And frankly, when he's hot and playing well and running good like he's run in the last couple, couple playoffs, um, I think we're beyond that. I think we're talking about like an all-NBA level player who's never made an all-star team. It's actually kind of amazing.
0: And looking at this season, just the single year season, the only players in these playoffs, according to your database, who have had a higher box plus minus are Nikola Jokic, Devin Booker, Jimmy Butler. That's it. That's the list. Those are the only three players that have had a higher BPM than Jamal Murray. So, like you said, very high, and across a couple samples, now we see that it's fairly consistent. Ben, you've dropped a little, a little nugget, a little Denver nugget here that I want to grasp on and, and hit you with, ask you about. Uh, Jamal Murray is an All Star. Is there anyone like where does he rank? No, he's not an All Star.
1: He's never made the All Star team.
0: So, where does he rank among all players? that have never made an all-star team? For me? Yeah. I, what, no. We should run through some people and see. like, Where does he compare to some of these other guys that have never won an all-star, been on an all-star team?
1: Should I give my answer now, or do you want to go through the people?
0: Okay, so here's the first name I thought. <laughs> All right. This this is dicey territory, because if I don't say the name that's on like a third of the people's minds, they're going to be angry. We'll maybe get to them. But the first guy that I thought of, been Ron Harper. Is Jamal Murray better than Ron Harper?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Cleveland Cavaliers, 1989 peak, probably before the knee injury, if you didn't see Ron Harper, slasher, athletic guy, good man, wing defender for that era. Uh, But I mean, offensively, you're talking about a player that was not sort of a number one offensive generative force. I don't even know how I would describe him in terms of like, is he a number two? Certainly a guy that can play next to other uh, superstar offensive players and fit well. But 20, 20-something points per game, low 20s off the top of my head, it's a diff- It's a different animal. It's a different animal to me. So I, I think even if you made the argument that he was an all-star level player at that point in time, which is fine, I actually am surprised that Ron Harper never made an all-star team. Um, you telling me this is like, oh, I can't believe Ron, I forgot, Ron Harper is never an all-star. But yeah, again, I think what you're seeing from Murray... Offensively is a clear level above that. Like, a a, a very significantly clear level above that. And let me add, because I had to cut it for time in the video, his defense has been key holding up in these playoffs. Because you see something like in the Lakers series, the Lakers attack him with LeBron James. That's because he's the smallest dude on the court. The Nuggets have this... The Nuggets just have a great team. They have spectacular roster building in my assessment and so you're left with KCP and Jamal Murray as the small guys to attack who would you rather pick on if you're LeBron James in the post you'd rather pick on Jamal Murray outside of that and a couple little issues here and there I think him buttoning up his defense has been huge he's had good man d possessions on the ball in critical moments He plays within the construct of the system. He rotates off the ball and communicates just like the rest of his teammates do. They're really well coached in that regard as a unit in Denver. And he made a couple big clutch plays in the Lakers series. Um, The one that comes to mind is in the fourth quarter, the Lakers ran like an ATO after timeout or something to set up a LeBron pass to Anthony Davis for a lob. And Murray had this unbelievable help from the wing coming down reading the play jumping over the top of anthony davis because remember he's big jamal's a big dude tipping the ball off the backboard turnover and denver goes the other way so even though i don't think of him uh as like significantly moving the needle in a positive direction on defense i do think him actually coming into this environment at this high level and holding up defensively is a key part of saying like yeah the offensive stuff you're seeing on the other side of the ball, it's not a Trey Young situation where I have to do mental gymnastics to figure out how much he's giving back defensively.
0: You know, and which is interesting because earlier in the Lakers series, I thought he was being, uh, I thought LeBron was doing a really good job of abusing him on some of those switches, and, you know, they were able to counteract that a bit. Uh, you want some more names? I want to throw some names at you. This, is the, this si- is the
1: best players never to make an all star team. This is what yeah, you're Yeah, exactly. But
0: by the way, by the way, I think Robert Ori. Has taken some shine off Ron Harper, who I believe was on five championship teams in the span of like eight years, going from that Bulls 3 threepeat, and I think he was on a couple of those Lakers seasons. He was on like he was a twenty-five minute per game guy on four championship teams. Like that, that's pretty solid. We're talking about some of the best role players ever. Like we, we should talk more about Ron Harper, uh, a guy that I think I wish I could see him play nowadays. Like the perfect kind of player for for small ball era. Small ball era. How about Lamar Odom?
1: That was my pick. For many years, for the best player to never make an all-star team. Uh, And and probably as you look at some of the names or you bring up some of the names, I think there are guys that actually maybe had better peaks. But Odom, as I've said many times, was the inspiration for coming up with this concept of the sub-all-star team. Because it's like, what does it mean when you have a guy for six, seven, eight years in a row who's just below making an all-star team? The West was stacked at that point in time with forwards. You had Dirk Nowitzki and Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan, who was really a center, but they wanted to list him as a forward for some fun reason. And Chris Webber and Rasheed Wallace and the list goes on and on and on. And so Odom was in almost an impossible position to make an all-star team or sneak into an all-star team, which happens sometimes, by the way, Cody, people get injured or you get situations where it's like, well... We don't really have a lot of centers left in the East here, so Dale Davis, you will be the All Star representative uh, for the East at backup center. Odom never got that, but you know, I I still don't think we're talking about the type of player we've seen from Jamal the the type of play we've seen from Jamal Murray here, and it's just going to be an oddity because if he continues to play even remotely like this next season. Um, as long as the Nuggets have a good first half of the season, he's going to make the All-Star team next season. And then my my fun was saying Jamal Murray is clearly the best. Did I to say that yet? To me, he's clearly the best player to never make an All-Star team.
0: Here's a sneaky player that I never hear talked about in this conversation. You got, you got more, is,
1: you're throwing more candidates at me. I, I'm going to just talk about this
0: one player, and then I'll say just another couple of names and we can move on because we could probably just go with the next hour of me just saying names and just breaking them down. It, but this player never gets brought up. Is it Bob Gross? He, it, <laughs> what well, man. man, Bob Gross, <laughs> We could have a whole episode on
1: Bob. That's Gross. for that's, that's for Portland. That's for you. Yeah. That's for and all I, of Oregon. Bob Gross, se- Bob Gross, third best player on a, on a dominant championship team from the nineteen seventies. What a player! We got to get Bill Walton. right? Yeah, that was the seventy seven Blazers. We yeah. got. I wonder. I wonder. I actually tried it when we were doing the Twitter Spaces with him a year or two ago. I tried to get Walton to wax about. Bob Gross, he only spent like 40 seconds on him. I was hoping we could get like a 10-minute rant on Bob Gross's uh, musical favorite choices. A- anyway, Cody, you were going to give me another player and then we're going to sh- finish the podcast.
0: All right, Sneaky, one of the best non-All-Stars of all time. Secretly, maybe the best player of the mid-'80s Bucks in the playoffs, Mr. Paul Pressy, who, according to your database, Paul Pressey, he has a couple of three-year spans where his BPM, his box plus minus, is hovering right above that four. We're talking about one of the initial point forward types of guys. Lockdown defense, a good six, seven frame, Statue of Liberty dunks, a guy that was just ahead of his time with the drives, could dish with the best of them. I mean, you want to see, like, a modern player playing in the 80s. The jump shot left some to be desired, but man, Paul Pressey in the playoffs, that guy could absolutely go. Let me say a couple of other names just so we don't go through them individually. Cedric Maxwell was never a uh, all-star d- despite being a Finals MVP in 81. We have Defensive Player of the Year Marcus Camby. We have uh, ESPN analyst or is it TNT? Sorry, no disrespect to Richard Jefferson. We have Jason Terry, Rod Strickland. These are all guys these that are, never these, made up. These uh,
1: are these are good teams. names. These are good yeah. names. Richard, I think for peak Uh, Richard Jefferson Jefferson had a good peak there. Um, Another guy that – did you say Michael Cooper? Oh, Michael Cooper. Yeah. That's another – He was Um, also – Arvidas Sabonis. So I think for peak, Arvidas Sabonis, when he got to the league early in the league, I think he was an all-star level player. I can't believe he didn't make an all-star team No. now that I say this. So Arvidas Sabonis is one guy. I think another really interesting guy for peak is Tony Kukoc. Because he came over and was put in a situation with the Bulls where it was potentially very hard for him to make an all-star team with his style of play because how is he going to score 20-something points a night? Uh, He's a tremendous passer. He's a stretch big. He's ahead of his time. But at that point in time, you get the soft European label. But I I do think his peak was quite good. I believe he won sixth man of the year in 96 off the top of my head. So Kukoch is there. I think the name... I think a couple other names, defensively Shane Battier, ton of value that makes it very interesting. Um, We mentioned Michael Cooper, we might as well mention Byron Scott. Uh, He's another guy who I think probably came close to making all-star teams in the 80s. But the name that people are going to mention that we have to say before we wrap up the show for peak, because I think he had an all-star peak as well, is Drazen Petrovitz. Uh, the, the the late great for the Nets started in Portland, comes over to New Jersey. I think what happened with him, you see it with a lot of developing players, Tracy McGrady, Paul Pierce. They are on a team that isn't good as they start to ascend. And then we just never got to see the rest of it. So it's like that first year, you're always snubbed. Uh, I, I remember Pierce, Pierce, the year before Pierce made the All-Star game, he averaged like 26 points a game. Hmm. Or something, but it was still, you know, the Celtics are like a thirty-win team, and it's Antoine Walker's team, and uh, but I think I think he was an All-Star level player and a, an amazing shooter. I'm glad we've gone down. This is what happens in the middle of May when you, when you know there's only one basketball game every two nights. This is this is what it comes to, Cody. Your Cody is singing to the trees about the uh, 1980s Milwaukee Bucks. What's going on?
0: I was to say I want a whole Paul Pressey episode, Ben. I have to issue an apology. Before we wrap up here. Apology. I have to issue an, apo- to issue an apology to the people. I was we called out. We haven't mouth. done one of these in a while. But it's, it's necessary. Last episode, you uh, asked me to rank off the cuff uh, the best players by ability, And I said, "Died Steph Curry, you know, I said Jamal Murray was number two. We had a whole Jeff Green situation. No. Do you know who I didn't say, Ben?
1: That clearly is, is just clearly number two. This is, this is, we don't need an apology for this. I was, I was asking you that rhetorically. There's no way you could, off the top of your head, name player. I mean, we can't even remember the names of players. I, I, sometimes I call you Kobe. I mean, we we, we can't even keep it straight. Uh, yes, go ahead. There, there's a couple obvious names that you left out. Who did
0: you want to apologize? I, d- to? I did have, one person said Anthony Edwards. He's a nice, he's not the guy I'm talking about. Anthony Edwards has, has some nice spurt ability, but the answer is Damian Lillard. Like, we've seen this guy go on some of the just hottest stretches of shooting of any player literally of all time. When he gets it going, he's completely unstoppable, and I, I genuinely feel bad leaving that one off. I don't. I don't mean any hate towards you, Portlanders. Portlanders. I don't know how you want to be called, but uh, Damian Lillard is definitely one of the 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 spurtiest. He's he's one of the spurtiest players
1: in the league. Ben, see, when you said that, I was like, man, Anthony Simons can get really hot. Anthony. Like like Dame Lillard is the obvious one, but when Anthony Simons is grooving, didn't he have six or seven threes in a quarter this season? It was oh. spectacular. That sounds yeah. right. Do you remember that? It sounds familiar.
0: There's also good stretches of the Blazers that I did not watch this season. I didn't think they wanted people to watch them at those times, so I didn't watch them.
1: <laughs> Wait, you, you thought the Blazers were like, please, please don't watch us. Uh, ben, come on. There were, some, there were some games
0: near the end there where like, if you showed me the starting lineups, I might have been like, yep, I know one of these guys.
1: Uh, to support this show, check out patreon.com slash Basketball. That's where you can look at uh, not only the stats for this season and this playoffs as it's unfolding. We have a ton of detailed numbers there that, that we've put up and added, but also the historical stats that we talked about. If you if you need to get your Paul Pressey or your mm-hmm. Terry Porter research on for any reason and their their playoff performance and things like that, patreon.com slash Thinking basketball thanks so much for your support as always thanks for uh, all the great comments lately on on youtube um and of course wherever you're watching i i mean we've got crazy basketball who knows what's going to happen there could be we might have the finals next time we talk and uh regardless of what happens i do hope you're having a great day